The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Norwegians understood that the cost per inch of NATO expansion as measured in units of damage to Western relations with Russia, the cost per inch went up the closer you got to Moscow. And so Norway knew that its membership in NATO was different in many ways than, say, Spain's membership in NATO. So the Norwegians, cognizant of that cost per inch, had decided to negotiate special terms, right? No nuclear weapons on their territory or in their ports, no foreign troops in peacetime. That, I think, should have been a model for Central and Eastern Europe and for the Baltics, and that could have been implemented through the Partnership for Peace. But instead, and this, again, is partly because of Yeltsin's choices, in particular the invasion of Chechnya, which causes everyone to say, oh, wait a minute, okay, now maybe Russia isn't all that different. Clinton changes his mind. Having said, I don't want to draw a new line across Europe, he changes his mind, he marginalizes the Partnership for Peace, and he decides to go with all or nothing, Article 5 or nothing expansion, thereby drawing a new line across Europe, irritating Russia during this precious moment of cooperation and basically shoving aside the Scandinavian strategy that had worked so well. I'm Alexander Vindman, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 22nd, 2021. Does Russia's grievance of NATO expansion upsetting U.S.-Russia relations hold water? I sat down with Dr. Mary Cerati, the author of the new book, Not One Inch, America, Russia, and the making of the post-Cold War stalemate to discuss the 1990s and NATO expansion. We discussed how respective decisions by America, Russia, and the European Union impacted NATO expansion and the geopolitical environment of today. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 22nd, talking about Mary Cerati's new book, Not One Inch, America, Russia, and the making of the post-Cold War stalemate. Let's just jump in, and I would like you to kind of go over. This is a fascinating book, and I really enjoyed reading it. I'd like you to maybe just give us the arc of the book. Sure, happy to do that. The book is a history of the fight between Washington and Moscow over NATO expansion. It's not a history of the alliance itself, but a history of that fight. And I follow that fight because when you're telling the history of the 1990s, you really need a story to follow. There is so much going on in the 1990s. There's the collapse of an empire, creating a whole host of new Eurasian states. There's the rise of dissidents from prisons to the presidencies, winning global admiration and Nobel Prizes. There's whole new possibilities for market economies, the tenets of liberal international order. 
but there's also new forms of ethnic cleansing and de-democratization. So there's just so much going on in the 90s. I think of them as an unruly decade. And so you need a story to follow to get from the beginning to the end. And as I said, the story that I follow is the fight over NATO expansion. And it's a story that is not just dry, dusty history, as, as you know all too well. This story still has an impact on U.S.-Russian relations today. This story still has an impact on Vladimir Putin and on what he does today. In fact, he, after Russia annexed Crimea, he gave a speech justifying that on the basis of NATO expansion. So this story is both historically fascinating and important right now in our relations with Russia. So you use uh, some interesting uh, handy tools to kind of tell the story. And you talk about ratchets. Could you yes. talk about the ratchets that kind of locked in the, the trajectory that you know put us in, in adversarial posture going into the, the 2000s and 2010s and until today? Yeah. So let me, I will explain that metaphor. Let me go back and talk about the arc of the book overall, because then the use of the idea of the ratchet will make more sense. So while the history is complicated, the narrative setup of my book, Not One Inch is Simple, it investigates NATO's decade of change, the 1990s, in three parts. So part one covers the George H.W. Bush presidency, which opens with a, a wall falling and new democracies rising to the joy of most of the world, but to the horror of Vladimir Putin and Soviet leaders who feel that their victory in the Second World War had actually earned them the lasting right to dominate Central and Eastern Europe. And the West German chancellor at the time, a man named Helmut Kohl, when the wall comes down, he starts repeating the same line internally to his fellow world leaders. He starts saying, we have to get our harvest in before the storm. And what he means by that is that he's certain the wall coming down, the collapse of Soviet control is going to cause a storm of resistance in Moscow that's going to wash Gorbachev away. So he and other Western leaders need to get their harvest in before the storm. In other words, before a coup sweeps Gorbachev away. Now, what Kohl wants in his harvest is the unification of his country, which has divided Germany. And he works closely together with the American president, George H.W. Bush. And what George H.W. Bush wants is to maintain not only NATO, but also its ability to expand. And working together, they pull that off in a remarkable 329 days. So that's part one of the book. Then part two of the book is the start of the Clinton era, 1993 to 1994. And the storm comes, there is a coup in 1991, but it's different than Cole expected. It sweeps away the entire Soviet Union in December 1991, so 30 years ago next month. And then remarkably, instead of a hardliner, you actually get a precious second chance at cooperation because there's another reformer who comes to the fore, and that's Boris Yeltsin. And Boris Yeltsin swiftly establishes a bromance with Clinton. Boris and Bill become the closest a Russian or Soviet and American leader have ever been. Clinton visits, they have 18 summits. Clinton goes to Moscow more than any president before or since. So they, they start off on this, this moment of, of cooperation, and I refer to it as the clearing after the storm. But then through the sequence of events I describe in the book, most notably Yeltsin's tragic self-harming use of force of bloodshed against his opponents in Moscow and in Chechnya in 1993 and 1994, the, the mood darkens and in America, Clinton starts to rethink some of the cooperation. 
And then part three of the book, 1995 to 1999, I call Frost, because it chronicles Clinton taking a more aggressive stance on NATO expansion as that Boris and Bill bromance disintegrates into alcohol-fueled tirades by Yeltsin, who's hanging up on Clinton in phone calls. And meanwhile, Clinton is stonewalling over U.S. military action in Kosovo. And finally, the relationship disintegrates in part because Clinton is becoming really distracted, of course, by the Monica Lewinsky scandal at home, which bursts into the headlines just as Putin is climbing the ladder of power in Moscow. And with both Moscow and Washington now preoccupied with internal issues, they've basically failed to create lasting cooperation in the thaw after the Cold War. And a frost is creeping back over their relations. So those are the three main parts of the book. And the reason I mentioned that in response to your question about the ratchet is that I argue that in each of these three sections, a president or a leader makes a ratchet turn. And I use that because a ratchet is a tool that turns in one direction only, foreclosing other possibilities. And so the first ratchet turn happens in the first part of the book under George H.W. Bush. And George H.W. Bush, he's of course in office when the Cold War order collapses. So the big question is what next? And his decision is that the post-Cold War order should look in many ways very similar to the Cold War order. And why not, right? From Washington's point of view, it had just won the Cold War. So why change? So Bush felt very strongly that he wanted to perpetuate not only NATO, but also NATO's ability to expand. It had expanded during the Cold War and he wanted it to be able to keep expanding. So that's the first decision a ratchet turn, because that forecloses other possibilities people are calling for, for pan-European security or for other structures. That's not going to happen. Then Bush loses the election, and we get to 93-94, and then Clinton executes a second ratchet turn, because now he's the president who gets to decide how to expand NATO. NATO expansion isn't just one thing. There's many ways you can do it. And so Clinton decides to start with a diffuse, contingent, phased manner of NATO expansion via an institution called the Partnership for Peace. And in the book, I argue that I think that was a wise strategy because it allowed for management of contingency across Europe. It also, as Clinton himself said at the time, did not draw a new line across Europe, cutting off important post-Soviet states like Ukraine, which of course was a major democracy, becoming a, you know, a sizable democracy. It had over 50 million residents at the time, as you well know. That's on the side scale of Britain or France. It was born nuclear, the third biggest nuclear power in the world. So Clinton argued that by having this phased manner of expansion, he could provide a birth for Ukraine in a way that NATO itself could not, because putting Ukraine in NATO in the early 90s was, was, was a non-starter. But then, for a host of reasons that I describe in the book, in the third part of the book, Clinton changes his mind and decides to push aside this partnership for peace solution, which, as I said, I thought was a wise strategy, and to switch instead to an all or nothing manner of expansion that does what he said he didn't want to do, namely draw a new line across Europe. And that then means that Ukraine doesn't receive any kind of secure birth in the post-Cold War security order with fateful consequences that last to this day. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, and I want to I want to do that with the ratchets. But before we go there, you mentioned relatively early on um, this concept of of uh, Helmut Kohl of bringing in the harvest before the storm. Yep. In your research, do you think that was alluding to the reactionary forces that he saw unfolding in those days in 1991? Or did he also have maybe a deeper perception of reactionary forces 
closer to what some other prominent politicians and including Eastern European leaders were concerned about, which is Russian irredentism, Russian revanche, uh, play on Yeltsin's own words that Russia will, will rebound and come back. Do you think there was anything of that nature or was it narrowly focused on uh, German uh, unity? Absolutely. Cole was a very savvy policymaker. And when he talked about the storm, I think he was worried about all the things that you've just described. What he couldn't quite figure out was the timing. And that was why he felt this intense need to rush to get Germany unified as fast as possible, because he was worried, I think, about all of those issues. And he wasn't wrong. A coup did happen in 1991. It was just a little later than he had expected. And then, as I said, surprisingly, the coup leads to ultimately Yeltsin, who's another reformer coming to power. But ultimately, in 1999, with the rise of Vladimir Putin, the forces of uh, revanchism, of people who were brokenhearted by the wall coming down, those people come into power. I've written, as you know, a previous book, The Collapse, The Accidental Opening of the Berlin Wall, which is largely about people for whom the opening of the wall was a joy and a triumph. In some ways, this book is about the people for whom the opening of the wall was a complete disaster above all Vladimir Putin. So Cole, I think, was basically right to worry about a storm of resistance coming. He was just wrong about the timing. It took longer than he thought. But yes, he was definitely worried about all the things that could go wrong, and he wanted to be sure to get his country unified before any of them did. I definitely want to touch on this idea of why you wrote the book, but let, let's maybe just jump back to the to the ratchets. This takes you forward maybe to your next book project, which would be the 2000s. But I guess what is your assessment of how much those ratchets in the 90s locked us into a particular kind of trajectory? There were obviously key events in the 2000s, the Orange Revolution uh, and the NATO Bucharest Summit that were key inflection points in the bilateral relationship. Were the, the 90s events truly uh, lock-ins or was there an ability to kind of change course with each new administration, potentially U.S. administration, the opportunity to kind of reset and uh, and take us back? And how would you assess those other key moments in, in the 2000s? Yeah. The way I put it in the book, I talk about the 1990s narrowing the parameters of the possible. So as I say in the book, it doesn't determine everything that followed, but it does foreclose other options. Let me summarize for your listeners one of the theories I use. I promise not to make this too painful. But one of the theories that I use in the book is a theory of punctuated equilibrium, which comes out of evolutionary biology. There's other disciplines that use it, but I like the statement provided by Stephen Jay Gould, who was an evolutionary biology professor. I, I was in his class as an undergrad, and, and I'd learned this at that time. And I find it a useful concept for understanding history and politics as well, and it's relevant to your question. So let me explain why. The idea with punctuated equilibrium, according to Stephen Jay Gould, is as follows. He said, when I investigate the fossil record, I do not actually see a little evolution one day and then a little evolution the next day. In other words, I don't see gradualism. What I, Stephen Jay Gould, see is long periods of stasis or equilibrium where relatively little changes. And then I see a dramatic punctuational event and a massive asteroid striking the earth that throws up so much dust that it shrouds the earth, lowers the surface temperature so much that the dinosaurs die out because they're cold-blooded, and a new species of mammals rise to the fore, and a new stasis or equilibrium develops, which is dominated by mammals. So why is this relevant? Well, 
what I like about this is it differentiates history between periods of relative equilibrium and periods of dramatic change. And those events of dramatic change, that's when multiple timelines to the future are possible. It's when individual choices and human agency have an outsized impact. And so because these events happened in the 1990s after this dramatic punctuational event of the wall coming down, Soviet collapse, when so much change was happening and so much change was possible, these events of the 1990s, they shaped the future in in an outsized way. In other words, in the 1990s, there were multiple timelines forward to the future, but because of the decisions in the 90s, we foreclosed a lot of other options and got on to what is a very dark timeline that we are on today. So no, it didn't, you know, foreclose all other possibilities, but it did limit the options and it did make it less likely that we'd be able to find you know, compromised solutions to the later crises that you just mentioned. I love the multidisciplinary approach. It's, uh, it's a very interesting uh, metaphor or way to explain these key moments as drivers of change. It seemed just after you kind of conclude this part of the story in the 90s, we had one of these moments unfold in 9-11 in which yes. the U.S. had the opportunity to kind of really change course in the relationship between the U.S. and Russia. I guess, why didn't that moment where Vladimir Putin was the first person to call George Bush in a condolence call of sorts and offer support, why wasn't that extended hand of friendship accepted by the U.S.? And why didn't that kind of maybe undo some of those, those early decisions in the 90s? Yeah, well, of course, there's agency on both sides. And I talk about that in the book. And after 9-11, of course, the George W. Bush administration, as is well known, felt very strongly that a a unilateral response was necessary. Of course, famously, NATO invoked Article 5 for the first time in its history. And the Bush administration decided, you know, not to make NATO the platform for uh, its response at that point. So, There was agency on both sides after 2001. I, going back to the 1990s, to my story, which I focus on, on the basis of declassified documents from that time, I see over the course of the 90s, the accumulation of scar tissue. The events are cumulative. I, I do not argue that NATO expansion is the only reason relations between America and Russia declined. But it contributed to Moscow's problems at a time when the nascent democracy was most in need of friends, at a time when there was all kinds of issues with corruption. You know all of this. I don't need to tell you all of this. So again, because that was really, I think, the punctuational moment, the time between the fall of the wall and the rise of Putin, by the time you get Vladimir Putin in the presidency, we didn't really at the, at the time appreciate just how willing he was to unravel the cooperation in the 1990s. Also, by the time you get to 1999, that's when you actually have NATO expansion starting. The manner of expansion is already set. There's just a lot of of decisions that are already at that point locked down and that are already foreclosed. And of course, you know, Putin is still in power. I mean, in December 31st, 1999, he became acting president, starting a reign measured in decades. So once you get to him, I think your options are many fewer. Let me put it this way. Putin is basically, he brackets my book. He's at the beginning of the book as a bit player in divided Germany. He's in East Germany as a mid-level KGB agent. He's absolutely horrified at what he sees around him. 
He's actually trying to get the Soviet military stationed in East Germany to use violence to resist the collapse of the East German state. And he calls it military, a military officer and says, you know, you guys have got to basically start firing. And the military officer says, we're not going to do anything without orders from Moscow. And Moscow is silent. And he said that phrase haunted him for years. So he's, you know, very, very bitter about these events. Then he disappears from the scene as he retreats from his home in a collapsing East Germany to his home in a collapsing Soviet Union. He disappears from the scene, which is, of course, fitting behavior for a member of the secret police. But once it becomes clear that that someone like him is going to reemerge as president, in other words, that, that Cole was right, the reactionaries, the storm of reaction is going to be successful. And once in particular, it's clear that it's him personally, it's, it's Vladimir Putin who's going to be the new leader. Then all these grievances that are inside him personally start to come to the fore again. And then I think you really do have many fewer options for later on, even though you have other dramatic events such as 9-11 and the you know, contacts after that. That's a very interesting story. So NATO by no means, and these ratchets by no means are you know causal in creating Putin or bringing him to, to power. But it is, in fact, one of the consequences, amongst many other consequences, that decisions made in the 90s set the conditions for a Putin-like figure to, to come to power and really you know, embody the reactionary movement to the 90s and the loss of, of uh, Soviet power and Russian power. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, again, it, it doesn't have to be the outcome of the 90s that Putin becomes leader. He, you know, for much of the 90s is struggling to find his footing. He's a displaced servant of the Soviet state, nursing his grievances about the collapse of the Soviet empire. There were other possible timelines towards the future. That's one of the jobs of a professional historian such as myself is, is understanding that the future is not given. There are many, many options. But once it becomes clear that he is going to be the one in charge, then yes, these grievances that he's carrying become important. And it dawned on me as I was writing this book, as I said, I've written a book about the collapse, the accidental opening of the Berlin Wall, which was a book with a happy ending. As I was writing this book, I thought, you know, what if we turn that happy ending around and we reframe the end of the Cold War? What if the most important outcome of the end of the Cold War is the impact it had on Vladimir Putin and the way it contributed to his later rise? That's a very different take on the end of the Cold War. And in many ways, it's a tragic take, right? I was, I was studying abroad in West Berlin in 1989. I experienced this enthusiasm, optimism firsthand, and I feel this personal sense of loss that it's gone. I wish the story had turned out differently, but it hasn't. And so I think as an academic, you know, I can add value by looking at why that happened on the basis of detailed evidence. You know, the book in, in its entirety is terrific, but there are a couple of things that were uh, really, really amazing. Your ability to access really all sides of the story, the German side of the story, the Russian side of the story, the American side of the story, your access to documents is, is pretty phenomenal. So I'd like to hear your take on how enormous an undertaking that was. What was your idea? Obviously, part of it was to accurately tell history that you couldn't really do by interviews or some other means, a, a method of, of conducting your research. And then, you know, take that from the maybe somewhat mundane declassification uh, story to what you what were some interesting moments that you uncovered, like the creative ideas that maybe didn't come to life, but were being discussed by the Russian side, the US side, which frankly, I think it was probably less, the least creative out of all the parties uh, and was was most kind of cautious, but I'd like to hear your thoughts there. Sure. 
the research for the book was challenging, but also a ton of fun. And it also went on for a very long time, which was, which was fine because I enjoyed it. I actually, in a sense, go back to some of the materials I started collecting in 1989 when I was studying abroad in divided Germany. I then, in the 1990s, that was when I was getting my PhD in history at Yale, I started doing interviews while people were still around, and I started working in uh, East German and East European collections, above all, the East German Stasi, or secret police files. And I mentioned that because I realized my work in those Eastern sources could help me get Western sources. Now, Western sources, as, as you know, as many of your listeners know, are generally kept classified for decades. That makes sense because current political actors need to know that they're not going to see a document they just wrote in the New York Times tomorrow. But you can request declassification, as, as your listeners know, and it helped me to do a better job of requesting declassification when I could do so on the basis of documents that I already had from the Warsaw Pact, from East Germany, from the former Soviet Union, because those documents opened, in the case of East Germany, those documents opened the minute the state collapsed. So in the year 1990, it became possible to see government documents from 1990. So I started a campaign to get documents declassified in the West. It took many years, but I kept at it, and gradually I got better and better at it. And one of my biggest breakthroughs, for example, was with the Clinton Presidential Library. So once I realized I wanted to tell this story through the 1990s, I realized that I needed, of course, documents through the 1990s. And so I requested, among other things, the transcripts of nearly all summits between President Bill Clinton and Russian President Boris Yeltsin. And I requested those in 2015. When that didn't succeed, I went through a, an appeals process with what's known as ICECAP, the Interagency Security Classifications Appeal Panel. And I can't say enough great things about the Clinton archivist and the people in ICECAP who really worked closely with me and helped me ultimately to win my appeal. And so in 2018, I got just thousands and thousands of pages from the Bill and Boris bromance. And when that declassification became public, the Kremlin complained. Dmitry Peskov, Putin's spokesman, complained that the Clinton Library should not have released these documents because they contained references to currently serving politicians above all his boss, Putin. Because, of course, Putin starts working for Yeltsin in many posts, among other posts as prime minister. So Peskov complained about this release. And so I figured if the Kremlin was complaining, I must have been doing something right. And when I got into these documents, they were just amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing. Just the uh, the, the nature of the relationship between Bill and Boris. I mean, the, the arc of it from this intense friendship, intense bonhomie, you know, the drinking together, the sort of carousing kind of at a, a very elite level. But then it, the dark turn that it takes, the, by the end, there's these, you know, strange scenes where Yeltsin's alcoholism is becoming a real problem. There's a, a summit where at the end of the day, the events are over, you know, Yeltsin goes back to his guest house and somehow he ends up on the street wearing only his underwear, yelling that he needs a taxi and a pizza, right? You know, this is, this is you know, the issue, this is how bad his, his problems with drinking are. He gets bundled back inside his guest house and he gets his pizza, but it's clear to everyone that he's this unstable actor. And then you get to these scenes where Yeltsin is hanging up on Clinton and they're yelling at each other and 
Clinton is saying to Yeltsin, what's the problem? And Yeltsin is saying, NATO, 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 again and again and again. Or you have a scene that I described in my foreign affairs article in 1999 in Turkey, their last meeting while they're both in office, where Yeltsin says things like, you've got to give Europe to Russia, give Europe to Russia. This is the closest Russia's ever felt to Europe. And Clinton is saying, I don't think the Europeans would like this very much. What are you talking about? Strobe Talbot is saying, Yeltsin is unhinged. It was just an amazing, amazing story. It's really fascinating. I hope that comes through in the book. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It does. Uh, so you've got Peskov yelling at you for, you know, nudging the release of the archives. You've got Lewinsky influencing Bill Clinton's attention span at minimum and then Yeltsin in his underwear. What a, what a fascinating, uh, you know, <laughs> body, body work. So what, what I thought was pretty interesting and I've done, I've been on the government side reviewing what, what we call mandatory defense reviews, reviewing all these, these documents so they could be publicly released. And I, I thought it was pretty amazing how forward leaning in certain ways the West was to not do a, a victory lap around the collapse of the Soviet Union and really pretty forward leaning, maybe not sufficiently. So maybe, you know, not quite living up to the moment and having quite the imagination required to lock in a friendly relationship with Russia, but pretty forward leaning. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, where different leaders and different countries stack up in the kind of the battle for ideas you know, what were some of the most creative ideas and that maybe didn't get realized? Sure. Yeah. So the big play in post-Cold War Europe was to establish some kind of lasting cooperative relationship with Russia. That doesn't mean it had to be, you know, a honeymoon all the time, or it doesn't mean there would be no frictions. But the big play was to somehow turn a former Cold War adversary into a constructive partner. And of course, in the United States, we look back to the years after World War II and to the ways that we worked with our former enemies in Germany and in Japan. Now, those, those processes weren't always smooth, but they did result in long-term lasting partnerships. And so the, the question is, why, why didn't that happen? And my story is part of an answer. Now, to be clear, I, I don't believe in monocausality. As a historian, I've never seen monocausality. In other words, I've never seen a major event that happened for one reason. Events happen for multiple reasons. So this is not just because of NATO expansion. I should also add my book is, is not an anti-NATO expansion book. 
I think NATO expansion was a reasonable response to the geopolitics of the 1990s. Certainly the Central and Eastern Europeans wanted to be in NATO. It was very much a demand-driven phenomenon. And they had the right to be in NATO. They were sovereign states. They had successfully extracted themselves from the Soviet bloc. They wanted to choose their own security alliance. That was perfectly reasonable. Expansion was not unprecedented. As I've already mentioned, it happened during the Cold War and it you know, made sense to continue it. The problem with NATO expansion was how it happened. And it happened in a way that in this precious punctuational moment that we've already discussed, it happened in a way that maximized Moscow's irritation, that undermined American-Russian cooperation at a time when, when that cooperation was leading to extraordinary strides in arms control. So that's another one of the big themes of the book. And you, you asked about perhaps ideas that, that weren't fulfilled or ideas that, or concerns voiced at the time that have been lost to history. In the book, I talk quite a bit about Clinton's Secretary of Defense, Bill Perry. Bill Perry basically communicated the following to Clinton. I'm paraphrasing, but the quotations are in the book. Basically said, you know, President Clinton, I understand Central and Eastern Europeans want to be in NATO as soon as possible. They wanted to be in yesterday. I have the greatest respect for what they have accomplished. I have the greatest respect for them. But I am the Secretary of Defense of the United States of America, and my job is to keep America safe, to make America safer. And I'm currently doing a great job because I am working together with Moscow to decrease the number of missiles pointed at the United States. I'm working to make sure I know where the Soviet arsenal is and for the parts of it that aren't on Russian soil to either get those missiles destroyed or get them relocated back to Russia. This is the most amazing cooperation since the dawn of the atomic age. And anything you do, President Clinton, that irritates or alienates Russia is ultimately going to hurt the United States because we are making such great progress. So don't switch this NATO expansion from the slower partnership or peace approach, which Perry really liked and it helped to develop. Don't switch it to this all or nothing. You get Article 5 or nothing approach. Don't do it. He was un unable to convince Clinton. He considered resigning. He didn't do it at the time, this is Perry, but in his memoirs in 2015, he said, you know, I wish I had resigned because the effects of premature NATO expansion were even worse than I had expected. So because of this, these decisions in this precious punctuational moment, they have this corrosive effect, which then becomes cumulative, as we discussed earlier. That's a fascinating historical anecdote. It seems to me, I'm a, I'm a policy guy, so I could have a perspective on NATO expansion. And I, I think based on the counterfactual, I'm going to ask you to comment on in a second, it, it make, made a lot of sense. But to Perry's point, I had a chance to interview him also for my own uh, doctoral uh, research. I think that's right that you want to do something to limit capability, but equally important is intent. And the question is, you know, what what might Russia look like absent NATO security guarantees for Eastern Europe? There's some really powerful anti uh, uh, counterfactuals that could emerge from your work. One is, was pan-European security viable given Russian exceptionalism? Another one is, uh, what might Europe look like without NATO security guarantees for Eastern Europe, the Baltics in particular, that would seem most ripe for Russian irredentist aspirations as Estonia is very, very close to the second city of, of, of Russia. So I, I'd be, just be curious to hear your, your thoughts on, uh, on some of these issues. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, a great way of, of, of uh, phrasing it, is thinking about the alternatives. 
So on the question, what would Europe look like without NATO security guarantees? Again, to emphasize, my book is not opposed to NATO expansion. I think that NATO expansion was a reasonable response to the pressures, threats, risks of the 1990s. I think that giving NATO security guarantees to places in Central and Eastern Europe made sense. What I criticize is how it happened. The Pentagon under Secretaries of Defense Les Aspen and Bill Perry, also the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, John Shalikashvili, advisors to Shalikashvili like Joe Kruzel, who tragically passed away, and then some members of the NSC, they came up with what I thought was a smart strategy, the Partnership for Peace, that allowed the, uh, how shall I put this, that allowed the extension of NATO security guarantees in a measured way. And it provided the ability to manage contingency. So in other words, you could slow down or speed up the conferral of Article 5 guarantees through the phased approach of the Partnership for Peace in a way that you simply can't if you're doing all or nothing expansion. And Perry knew this at the time. He kept pointing this out. Charlie Kashvili knew this as well. They, together with President Clinton, actually sold the idea to Central and Eastern Europeans who were concerned about it. And it was very telling how they did that. President Clinton himself went to and spoke to Polish leaders, to Czech leaders, and said, you know, I understand you want Article 5 as soon as possible. I understand you want it yesterday. But you Central Europeans, you of all people should understand the problem with drawing a new line across Europe between countries that have Article 5 and countries that don't. Because, of course, tragically, at Yalta, you got left behind a line. And again, this is Clinton speaking. Clinton says, we need to think not only about Central and Eastern Europe, but also about post-Soviet states. They're getting forgotten in this discussion. And we really need to think about Ukraine. One of the biggest shocks for me in my research, this is Mary speaking, was just how important Ukraine was to Clinton from the get-go. And he said, you know, it's a big country, it's a democracy, it's a nuclear state. You know, we shouldn't leave it in the lurch. We shouldn't have a new line across Europe. So we should instead have this, this slow phased in manner of the partnership for peace, where some countries like Ukraine will join the partnership and kind of stay there, but other countries will progress through it and join NATO. And the Poles, they didn't love it, but they agreed through clenched teeth that they could see the point. And the Russians didn't love it either, but they agreed that they could see the point. In other words, the partnership for peace, it wasn't sexy, it was a compromise, but it worked. And so I argue that that would have been a better way to confer the security guarantees. And lastly, you mentioned the Baltics. The Baltics are another extremely, extremely interesting part of the book. Another one of my surprises was how early on Clinton's advisor, Strobe Talbot, was clear that NATO expansion must continue until it got to the Baltics. Already in the early 90s, he was talking about that. And by the mid-90s, he was saying NATO expansion has to continue. It will not be done until it includes the Baltics. He was so insistent on this that internally it was known as the Talbot Principle. And that really surprised me because there were other voices saying, you know, we need to be a little bit careful here. In particular, Scandinavian and Nordic countries. Now, why are they relevant? Well, during the Cold War, uh, Norway, for example, Norway lived in a neighborhood that was Soviet adjacent, but not Soviet controlled. And so that should have been a model for Central and Eastern Europe and the Baltics, because after the Cold War, they're in a similar position. They're in a neighborhood that's Russia adjacent, but not Russia controlled. And the Norwegians decided on what I call the Scandinavian strategy. And I talk about this in my foreign affairs article that's in the current issue. Now, what I mean by that was the Norwegians understood that the cost per inch of NATO expansion, as measured in units of damage to Western relations with Russia, 
the cost per inch went up the closer you got to Moscow. And so Norway knew that its membership in NATO was different in many ways than, say, Spain's membership in NATO. So the Norwegians, cognizant of that cost per inch, had decided to negotiate special terms, right? No nuclear weapons on their territory or in their ports, no foreign troops in peacetime. That, I think, should have been a model for Central and Eastern Europe and for the Baltics, and that could have been implemented through the Partnership for Peace. But instead, and this, again, is partly because of Yeltsin's choices, in particular the invasion of Chechnya, which causes everyone to say, oh, wait a minute, okay, now maybe Russia isn't all that different. Clinton changes his mind. Having said, I don't want to draw a new line across Europe, he changes his mind, he marginalizes the Partnership for Peace, and he decides to go with all or nothing, Article 5 or nothing expansion, thereby drawing a new line across Europe, irritating Russia during this precious moment of cooperation and basically shoving aside the Scandinavian strategy that had worked so well. I think there's an interesting story about too much and not enough here. Maybe the way that NATO unfolded, uh, NATO expansion unfolded was too much and decreased the ability to have a, a constructive relationship with Russia, but not enough in that it didn't include all the players that potentially Russia might cast their eye on in the future. Or another way of looking at not enough, that it didn't include a home for Russia, uh, ultimately, or for Russia to feel kind of secure about its p- position. Yeah, home for Russia and also a berth for Ukraine. Yeah. Clinton said, and this was another one of my surprises, Clinton said at a fairly early date, Again, I'm paraphrasing, but the the full quotations are in the book. He said, basically, I don't think there's going to be lasting peace in Europe unless we come up with a a solution for Ukraine. He was conscious of that. And I remember reading that around around 2014 when when, Russia was annexing Crimea. And I thought, wow, that's really prescient. And then I started researching the Partnership for Peace. And I realized, wait a minute, we had this, this solution. Also, Russia, again, Russia wasn't thrilled about it, but Russia also joined the Partnership for Peace. And in my book, I reproduce a map from 1994. And the startling thing about this map, it's towards the end of the book, is that there's no clear dividing line down the center of Europe. We're used to, of course, the map of Cold War Europe, which has a clear dividing line. But as of 1994, because of membership and overlapping institutions, there wasn't a clear dividing line. And Russia was in all the institutions except NATO. And that looked to me like a point on a timeline to a better future. And then we got off that. Uh, We got off that, as I said, because of the invasion of Chechnya, also the impact of domestic politics. There was the uh, Republican victory in the midterm congressional elections of 1994, and Clinton had to pay attention to that because he wanted to be reelected. And of course, the Republican Party ran on the contract with America, which emphasized giving Article 5 to countries, you know, this all or nothing expansion. And so I think that, you know, we were on a, a path that had a birth for Ukraine and that had at least a, a, a an acceptable slot, if not a good one, you know, one that Moscow loved, at least an acceptable slot. But then we got off of that timeline. Yeah. So this would be that tiered mechanism within the Partnership for Peace that would provide some security guarantees for Ukraine, because I'm actually not all that familiar with it, but uh, wouldn't bring uh, Ukraine to NATO. Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So the idea was intentionally left vague because the ambiguity was useful. But the idea was that the Partnership for Peace would in some ways modulate NATO expansion. So instead of all or nothing expansion, where you either give a country full Article 5 guarantees or nothing from day one, instead there would be a series of phases, countries 
could join the partnership and did join the partnership. The partnership stretched basically across Eurasia. And then gradually countries through peacekeeping exercises, through cooperation, could gradually make their militaries interoperable or more interoperable with NATO, take part in peacekeeping operations, and gradually start to show that they were ready to become members. And then the alliance could move them through phases toward Article 5 guarantees. And this is not just Ukraine. That's actually important. It's basically open to all countries, meaning Ukraine can just be one of many. This has several advantages. It puts NATO expansion at the end rather than at the beginning of the process, right? So it's not Article 5 or nothing from the get-go. It means that countries can develop individualized relationships with NATO. It basically allows you to manage contingency because you can move countries through the process more slowly or more quickly, depending on how they're doing and depending on geopolitical conditions. So it's a, a way of both providing association for countries that probably aren't going to be in NATO, but also creating a path to NATO for the countries that are going to be able to get through. And so, you know, these are some of its selling points. And uh, one of the big promoters was, of course, Shali Kashvili. But then, of course, there's a number of people who say, well, this is ridiculous. You know, we, we have a moral obligation from Yalta to let the Central and Eastern Europeans join NATO right away. Uh, there's also hardliners who refer to the need for neo-containment, who say, you know, partnerships peace is ridiculous. We should cage the bear while it's down. There's a lot of bear metaphors in the documents. So these advisors who want to give countries Article 5 as soon as possible, they ultimately convince Clinton that they're right. And as I said, Clinton is also swayed by the victory domestically of the Republican Party. And then, of course, what's happening in Russia as well, because Russia has important agency here as well. Right. The country, the democratization is proving difficult. There's corruption. There's the fighting in Chechnya. There's, you know, all kinds of reasons that people are starting to doubt Russia will be, you know, a good neighbor. It's been a big neighbor for a long time. And as Clinton said, now it needs to be a good neighbor and it's failing to do that. And of course, the 98 economic crisis is hugely important, Kosovo as well. Again, these things are cumulative, but the outcome is that we get, you know, all or nothing NATO expansion and we get the frictions with Moscow. And Ukraine gets left without a, a defined birth in Europe. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely uh, touch on Ukraine, what, what their ramifications are, you know, how how we find ourselves in this situation with Ukraine constantly a zone of instability and, and friction. But what what can you tell me about how did the 1990s impact today? What are the consequences that you could tie in from the 1990s to today to just get us to this point? Yeah. So in the 1990s, as I was saying before, I think that there were many possible futures out there. And I mentioned in the book, I have this map from 1994, it was actually put together by the German Foreign Office, showing a Europe with no clear political dividing line down the middle of it. That was an alternate future. But the events of the 1990s, and again, I, I really can't emphasize this enough, it's not just what Washington does, right? Other countries' decisions matter as well. So that's one of the reasons why the book is based on sources from so many countries. We recreate a line across Europe between countries that have Article 5 and countries that don't. And we do so at a time as Vladimir Putin is rising through the ranks, and that gives him fuel. Now, of course, Putin repurposes this history to his own ends. You know, what he says about it can in many ways be, you know, highly inaccurate. But he he's found that it's useful to him to justify what he's doing now, and he continually talks about it. One of the things what I, that I'm trying to do in this book is establish a shared narrative about what happened based on evidence. 
So I personally had no role in any of these events. This story, in order for me to write the story, I can't rely on my memories or memories of my, my you know, friends in office. I, I had to do this all from evidence. And I believe you should enter the past through as many portals as possible. So in addition to the documents, I did over 100 interviews and I used television recordings and, and, and videos and, and radio broadcasts, anything I could use to document what happened. And so given that this, the fight over what happened at the in the 1990s, in particular, the fight over whether the West promised Russia it would move NATO not one inch eastward. That's the controversy that gives the book its title. I feel that I can add value as a historian by creating a documented narrative. Now, we're still going to fight about what it means, but hopefully we can move beyond just sort of shouting and actually look at what the evidence says. And when I looked at that evidence, I saw that this phrase, not one inch, it gradually took on a new meaning. The original phrase, of course, famously, was what uh, Secretary of State James Baker said to Mikhail Gorbachev in February 1990. The idea was roughly a a bargain to allow Germany to unify, a, a hypothetical bargain, I should emphasize. This was not written down. This was not formalized. Secretary of State Baker proposed as a hypothetical bargain, how about you, Mikhail Gorbachev, let your half of Germany go, and we in the West promise that NATO will move not one inch eastward. In other words, it'll stay frozen on the Cold War line. And Gorbachev you know, thinks about it and says, hmm, yeah, certainly any extension of NATO would be unacceptable, but there's nothing written down, there's nothing agreed. And almost as soon as Baker gets back to Washington, his boss, George H.W. Bush, says to him, no, Jim, that, that wasn't right. We're not going to leave NATO frozen on the Cold War line. Among other things, that would leave half of Germany in NATO and half of Germany out of NATO. So we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is, you know, I, I want to keep NATO and keep its ability to expand across the Cold War line into Eastern Germany. What we'll do instead is basically give some guarantees as to limits to what we'll do as we move closer to Moscow. Again, this is the Scandinavian strategy, right? Cognizance of the fact that the cost per inch of NATO expansion goes up as you get closer to Moscow. And so Bush very wisely says, you know, we'll we'll agree on some limits. And that has the effect that the former territory of Eastern Germany is to this day the only part of Europe that is guaranteed to be a nuclear-free zone. So this phrase, not one inch, turns out to mean not what Baker thought. And he quickly, that was another one of my discoveries, quickly has to undo that and walk that back and has to write to allies and say, let's drop what I just said, forget that. And gradually, not one inch starts to take on the opposite meaning in Washington. As Germany unifies, and then as the Soviet Union collapses, suddenly the horizons get much bigger. And suddenly Washington realizes it can not only win big, but it can win bigger. Not one inch of territory needs to be off limits to NATO. And so then you start to get, you know, this all or nothing expansion that has the, the, that manner of expansion has these corrosive effects on the relationship with Russia at a time when, you know, there were so many other alternatives. So these events, they don't define everything that happens afterwards, but as I've said, they narrow the parameters of the possible. They carved out the future that we have, they foreclosed other options, and they lead forward to this dark timeline we got onto, which of course has these, you know, incidents like the 2016 hacking of the election, and all that follows from that, as you know, you know, so well. Yeah. Well, this the title Not One Inch uh, is probably one of the reasons why we have nearly 100,000 troops on Ukraine's border at the moment. And You've uh, raised Ukraine a couple of times during this conversation and its centrality to, to Russian power. It seems to me at the moment that we have a scenario in which Ukraine finds itself out of any collective security architecture, 
a significant oversight by by the West in trying to frame a structure to ensure stability in Europe, but also slowly making the kind of progress that was almost envisioned by the Partnership for Peace, and at the same time slipping through Russia's uh, fingers. Russian influence is waning. Ukraine's uh, has a much much more coherent national identity. Ukraine's uh, economy is making fairly significant strides, and we we find ourselves on on the precipice of another another flashpoint, one that we wouldn't have thought would be possible after World War II, and and certainly not in the in the 1990s that we're still hopeful, or even the 2000s, only kind of culminated in the 2010s and and now. So I'd be curious to hear about, you know, and maybe this could be a discussion about your views on Ukraine, uh, where Ukraine fits into the, to this story a little bit more, and then uh, happy to discuss that a little further. Yeah, I was wondering if I can actually ask you a question, because I'd be interested to know how worried you are about Ukraine now. Yeah, um, so I'm reasonably worried. I, I kind of think about the universe of possibilities. And in the universe of possibilities, one extreme scenario is Russia uses military force. Highly unlikely that it's going to secure all of Ukraine, but sufficient territory in Ukraine to do the land bridge between Russia and Crimea to secure what, what it believes are like, you know, this, these projects of Novorossiya, like the, these uh, indigenous Russian territories and destabilize the, the capital Kiev and, and, and make it a failed state. So that's one one extreme. The other extreme is a significant amount of military demonstration, saber rattling, and possibly some military incursion, but really only sufficiently potent enough to somehow compel a negotiation with the West, where the West succumbs to this the consistent fears of escalation with Russia and war and all these catastrophic outcomes and decides to negotiate an outcome where it backs off support for Ukraine and Russia has a free hand. And I think those are the the universe of possibilities as far as the Russians see them. And in all those scenarios, they see themselves as, as gaining a significant amount of leverage. I think they do this because one, their claims are weakening in Ukraine. And two, they see significant opportunities with regards to the West uh, pivoting to other geopolitical challenges domestic turmoil in, in key Western uh, adversaries. And that's why we're seeing this this current issue uh, unfold. I think the, the implicit response to those is is actually diplomacy on the part of the US and the Euro-Atlantic Alliance to deter Russian aggression. That's probably in the, the form of much, much more significant support for Ukraine. In my conception, Ukraine is a gravity well. Where Ukraine goes, Russia is, is bound to follow. You've heard me talk about this idea of West Germany providing a normative case, basically a, a, a means to invalidate East Germany during the Cold War. I think Ukraine meets the same kind of criteria. And uh, uh, through Ukraine, we could achieve a, a lot of our geopolitical desires for Russia and, and, and more broadly. Very interesting. Thanks for that. Yeah. Again, as I said, one of the things that was really amazing to me was just how clearly President Bill Clinton understood the centrality of Ukraine to peace in all of Europe. And that was very, very clear to him in the early 1990s. As he said, when he was talking about the Partnership for Peace, Ukraine is the linchpin of the whole idea. 
we need to find a birth for Ukraine, basically, because otherwise, you know, we're not going to have peace, lasting peace in Europe. We need to write a new chapter in Europe's history. And so, you know, that's another um, reframing of the post-Cold War period. We could talk about it as, a, as the beginning of the fight over what happens in the post-Soviet space, right? When you have Russian imperial collapse, what happens? And we don't have an answer to that yet. It's funny because the Soviet Union on paper collapsed 30 years ago in December 1991. It, it, on paper, it happened immediately. And it happened partly because Ukraine pulled out to become independent. It happened partly because Boris Yeltsin absolutely hated Mikhail Gorbachev. And the best way he could figure out to get rid of Mikhail Gorbachev was to make Mikhail Gorbachev president of nothing. So on paper, the collapse of the Soviet Union happens really, really quickly. But I think in reality, empires die a slow and painful death. And we are still living in, in, in real terms with the consequences of that collapse. And that's one of the reasons why I, I, I mourn the passing of the, uh, the Partnership for Peace solution to NATO expansion, because I think it did offer a birth for Ukraine. Again, it wasn't perfect. Nobody loved it. Uh, I'm not, you know, idealizing it. But it was, I think, a workable policy that, you know, squared an important circle. Basically, after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, Washington had to decide, was it going to prioritize the people formerly dominated by Moscow or was it going to prioritize relations with Moscow? And that's a very hard call, especially when you're trying to help dismantle Moscow's strategic nuclear arsenal. And so if the question is, you know, which one do you prioritize? The correct answer is both, because they're both so important. And the Partnership for Peace allowed you to do that because you could kind of work both of those relationships. But once you gave up on that and you made clear that you were going to prioritize Central and Eastern Europe, which is a reasonable choice, but once you make that clear, then it's hard to avoid the damage to the relationship with Russia. And that, of course, has fateful consequences for today, getting to where, as you rightly said, a place where we never thought we would be. Well, I think what we could close with is this idea that we're in a particularly complex moment in geopolitics. Russia has, has now firmly set its eyes on, on potentially holding on to the residue of its empire. This might be the, the dying days of, of that empire that you referred to, the death throes, and those could be particularly catastrophic and violent, yeah. as, as we know, you especially as a historian. So any closing thoughts as we wrap up? Huh. Well, I think as a historian, we can't predict the future, but we can prepare for it. And the best way I know of to prepare for the future is to study history, right? I mean, it's a little bit like uh, my John Lewis Gaddis, who I studied with at Yale, used to say, you know, it's like uh, a, a pilot being in a flight simulator, looking at past, you know, flight routes and things like that. It doesn't guarantee he'll know how to fly a plane, but it does mean he'll be better prepared to do that. I think we need to have a much stronger historical understanding of the United States of these events, particularly looking back at the 1990s when so much seemed to be going right. If we look more closely, there are a number of things that are already starting to go wrong. And of course, the decade ends with Vladimir Putin coming into office. So I think understanding history will help us not to predict, but to prepare for the future. And so I'm grateful to you and to Lawfare for spending this time talking about history and the way that it can hopefully help us understand today's turbulent world. Mary Cerati, not one inch. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com 
for brand new lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is edited by Jen Patyahal, and our audio engineer this week was Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, and as always, thank you for listening.